How about bad language? Oh, I won't be using bad language. What about the titles I was talking about? In my opinion, they're all too wordy. A title is not meant to describe the programme, it's meant to inspire curiosity. Correct. Football ruined my life. That's better than anything so far. Really? Yeah, it's a good title. But if we can use that even as a working title, and yeah, we all yeah, agree yeah. on it, yeah, and yeah. not drive ourselves crackers, yeah. that would be a better yeah. Having got that out of the way... Right, OK. Let the good times roll. Hello, and welcome to a new podcast about football. Football is so tied up with every element of my life. I can still feel my stomach churning at the emotion of that day. Miriam Margulies, her name yeah. has never appeared on a football podcast before, I'm reasonably sure. As he walked towards me, he was like a ballet dancer. He was walking on his toes. Beautiful, beautiful poise. He must have been 76, 77 at the time. Oh, yes, I know. What could possibly be new about any podcast about football? Well, what's new about this one is that we are going to be looking at the current state of the game through the lens of the football we grew up watching in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. We'll be looking back, not, I hope, through rose-tinted glasses, but at the reality of what football in this country was like at a time when many of us were young and football represented everything that was hopeful and optimistic in our lives. Does it still do that? My name is Colin Schindler. You might have heard of me as the author of Manchester United Ruined My Life and a few other books on football history. Joining me today, and I hope on a regular basis, are two friends of a similar age. Patrick Barclay is well known to most of you as a distinguished football journalist and John Holmes is the man who saved Leicester City and managed the rise and rise of Gary Lineker. The podcast is called Football Ruined My Life, but the negative implication might just be the result of my own creeping disillusion with a game that has been so much a part of my life. The start of a new season used to be a magical time, a fresh start, a clean slate, the possibility of a trophy, of promotion. Everything was intoxicatingly possible. Now, to tell the truth, my heart sinks when I face the prospect of another season of bile and spite and too much money and everyone behaving badly. But that's almost certainly just me. So to begin with, let's concentrate on the positive aspects of the game. For this opening podcast, let's introduce ourselves to our listeners and perhaps the best way we can do that is to talk about how it all started and whether we still feel the same enthusiasm for the game. How old were you when you went to see your first match? Who took you? Is that how you started supporting your team? John, it couldn't possibly have been Leicester City, could it? I think it was. (laughs) I went to a a pre-season game, 1957, It was a match between the reserves. I didn't know what the reserves meant. I thought this was a side. The reserves and the first team. And actually, extraordinarily in this game, and extraordinarily for a pre-season friendly, as it were, a player got sent off. The player's name was Johnny Morris. He was next Man United, Derby County, England International. How on earth he got sent off escapes me. But my father always says that I actually took very little notice of the game. As kids, I was only 
just turned seven at that point. Kids at that age, when you take them to football, they're actually not much interested in the football. What actually gets them is the shouting, the booing, the cheering, the atmosphere of the crowd, everything. Paddy, where did it start for you? It was in Dundee. I was brought up in Dundee and my grandfather used to tell me stories of, I mean, this is how long ago it was. He talked about the Dundee team that had won the Scottish FA Cup in 1910. And I don't know, it just sort of inspired something in me. And I, I kept asking him, you know, can you take me to a match? But he didn't. Anyway, he was from a jute family. Jute was big in Dundee. So consequently, he had a car, which was fairly unusual in those days. And we are talking about mid-1950s. I was born in 1947. So he got his car out, put me in it, and took me up to a night match at Dens Park, Dundee FC's ground, and said, OK, there you are. And I paid to go into the stand alone. An eight-year-old boy sat there, watched the match. I think it was against Hibbs. I remember the atmosphere, as John says, you know, it's the atmosphere that gets you. But with me, it was the colour of the shirts. It was the dark blue shirts. I still love that colour. I wear it all the time. I suspect all our memories are pretty similar, differing, obviously, in detail. I was six and a half. It was December the 31st, 1955. And no, I haven't just looked it up because it's an easy date to remember, right? Mm -hmm. New Year's Eve in Manchester, and it was a Manchester derby. Mm -hmm. And we went to Old Trafford. I was already a City supporter, so I I knew which side I was on. Like everybody else, I loved the atmosphere, the passion, the, the excitement. And City scored first. And this, to me, seemed, well, that's perfectly logical. I'm here. It's my first game. Of course we're going to win. And then midway through the second half, United equalised. Oh, this is not really supposed to happen. And then I'm waiting for the City response. And it never really happened. And United scored again and won 2-1. And I thought there was something amiss with it, not just with the game, but with the world. I mean, age six and a half, I already had this sense of life is really quite unfair And that was my first game. And I've never really lost that sense of this is what's going to happen despite your best endeavours, despite all the enthusiasm that you regenerate every time you go up the steps and find your seat and sit in the game and watch the game. You get a sense of it's going to be today, we're going to win 6-0. And when it doesn't happen, there is a sense of betrayal somewhere. So that's that's where I'm starting. It's interesting, you see, our generation, I think, fell in love with football because we were taken in most cases by your father or by a relative or what have you. It wasn't the football, it was the atmosphere. Don't forget, there was no football on television in those days. This generation, actually, there's so much football, it's possible they're not taken to games. They get introduced to football through television. Therefore, they become fans, not necessarily... For me, I'm a Leicester support, that's where I'm from. That's what I represent. It's a very important part of me and my life. Sunday afternoon, I was taking the dogs for a walk because Leicester had got beaten very heavily and so I was not going to watch anything else. And there's some cottages along from us. And from the upstairs window, I thought some bloke was having an orgasm. He was <laughs> shouting, he was shouting, yes, 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 rash, gone. I thought, rash, what is it? And then, as you do now, I looked on my phone a second or two later, Rashford had scored for Man United. (laughs) But I understand it. Our generation is different. We, in general, supported where we came from. And it was part of us because we were taken. And it wasn't the football we fell in love with. It was the experience of going to a match. I always felt that when Celtic won the European Cup, as we then called it, in 1967, 
They won it with 11 players who were born within 30 miles of Glasgow. Yeah. And I always thought that was how it should be. And it isn't. Now, the question is, the fact that it's no longer a local game, it's now a global game. In acquiring audiences all over the world and, and endless amounts of money, etc., etc., have we lost something intrinsic to the game that was part of what we fell in love with when we were kids? I think as long as all the people alongside you in the ground and in your community, even if you watch it in pubs or keep in touch electronically with a, a group of mates, that's, that's the players are going to come and go. Unless you're a supporter of the, one of the top five clubs in the world, the players are going to come and go. The managers are certainly going to come and go with even greater rapidity. But the supporters are going to be more or less the same people forever. So to that degree, I don't think we've lost a great deal. I personally, I can really understand what you say about the Celtic, the Lisbon Lions. That was something really, really special. And even today, I mean, I, I told you I support Dundee. We've got about four or five, six actually, homegrown youngsters. And that really makes this team special for me, I must admit. But to be quite honest, I suppose if those six homegrown kids were replaced by George Best, Diego Maradona, Lionel Messi, I would, with reluctance, bid these young homegrown kids farewell. But John, taking up the point I asked Paddy, you've seen football from almost every single level throughout your life, from the bottom to the top. Do you think something's gone out of the game? because of the changes that have ine inevitably happened? Well, we have to accept in life everything has changed. Some things are better, some things are worse. Right. I'm older now. Do I get the same thrill out of football? I have to say I was, what, 65 when we won the league. And that I never thought would be possible. And I have to remember back, and this is where it relates to all your family and who you are. Mm. My father supported the club for 75 years. They never won the league. They never won the cup. Mm. In my lifetime, they've now won the league and the cup. And they won the league cup. He saw them win the league cup, but he didn't consider that a proper competition. My son now, age 34, has seen them win both. And now thinks we ought to be, like you're saying, we ought to be top of the league the whole time and gets very cross. Everything's changed. Some things are better. The standard of football is fantastic. Some of the players, the standard of fitness, some of the football they play is genius level. It's brilliant. You cannot compare the players that we saw when we were younger with the players now because they're fitter, they're given better nutritional advice, they train in much better surroundings, the standard of coaching. There wasn't much coaching when these players were young. They told them to go out. There was a coach at one club, I remember reading about it, he didn't let them have a ball all week because mm -hmm. his theory was they would be hungry for it at the mm -hmm. weekend. These things have all changed, most of those changes, for the better. But there is this disconnect. For me, going to a football match was connecting with the city, with a class of people I didn't come across mm -hmm. normally, and being, if you like, 
a citizen of Leicester as opposed to someone who lived in a village just outside. I know that that's a very good point about about the identifying with another class, if you if you like, because I always felt, yes, I'm a middle-class Jewish intellectual, and I'm a bit stuck with this, but I can talk about football. If you come towards me with a knife, I will talk about football very quickly, because it's the only time where I feel I can actually relate on that level, and perhaps the knife might drop a bit if it sports the same thing. Yes, it was, and it remains to this day. In that way, it was a common language. I definitely felt more part of the community when I was at Dens Park. Then when I was walking to and from school. But this was part of Manchester. But that's still true now. You could go to a a jungle clearing in Vietnam, as I did only five years ago, and see a kid in full Chelsea kit, up to date, by the way, and you could talk to him about Chelsea. And so football still... Uh, even more uh, was, universal language. At one point, I was writing an adaptation of Manchester United Ruined My Life as a movie. Yeah. And I opened it. I was rather pleased with this. It never actually went anywhere. I was opened it with Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tensing climbing exhaustedly to the top of Mount Everest. And as they put their flag in the snow, they see on the ground mm. a little Manchester United scarf that's been left there. <laughs> the script never got made, but I thought it was a good joke to start really? with. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm going to move it on a bit now to talking about whether football has a kind of social chic to it that was never there before. A few years ago, I was on a programme with an actress friend, who I think I can name. It was Miriam Margulies. Her name has never appeared on a football podcast before, I'm reasonably sure. She was coming down the corridor at the BBC Broadcasting House towards me, and I was walking towards her, and her eyes panicked because she knew that I'd just recently published this book, Manchester United Ruined My Life, which even she had heard of, and she felt compelled to say something about football. And she said, not realising the book was about Manchester City rather than Manchester United, (laughs) her response was to reference a Wednesday night Champions League game played by Manchester United against Rapid Vienna or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. She said, oh, that was a good win for you boys on Wednesday night. (laughs) And I just thought, Miriam, you don't need... You're a very good actress, which she is. We can have perfectly good conversation without degenerating to this (laughs) nonsense. And therefore, my question to John is, do you find that football chic is something that has been a good thing for the game. Because you must know a lot of people you'll come into contact with who are supporting football, in inverted commas, not in the way that we three are supporting football. In a lot of ways, it has been good, because I always used to get upset that there was a very patronising way of talking about football and talking Mm. about footballers and so on. Footballers were regarded as stupid, their brains are in their boots and all this sort of stuff. Mm. And cricketers were more intelligent than apparently footballers. And rugby union players, well, they were terribly good chaps, you know, Mm. even though they ended up biting each other's ears (laughs) and doing all appalling things that they Mm. did. Mm. That's gone now because everybody has a football club and it's nice and they will tell you what their club is. But the other thing I think about people going and what Mm. I've noticed recently and live not that far from Nottingham. They haven't had a Premier League side for some time now. And Forrest at Leicester's deadly enemy, of course. But what I have appreciated, I've been seeing kids now back in the Forest shirts, rather than wearing Liverpool or, God help us, Chelsea or Man United shirts Mm. in Nottingham, which offends me. Mm. They shouldn't, actually. They should be wearing their own club colours. Supporting a smaller club with lower expectations is, is much better for your character. Of course. Because people who support Manchester United, 
even Liverpool to an extent, they get really spoiled. They get too much success. So that if they don't win the Champions League and the league in a season, they're calling for the manager to be sacked. There was also a feeling amongst the generation that came that uh, you could only actually support a Premier League team. I remember when we were in the second division, which is laughably called now the Championship or whatever it was called, <laughs> still the second division as far as I'm concerned. And this very well-educated woman said, why do you support Leicester? And so I went a bit northern as I can. And I said, <laughs> because if you look out the window you will see the hospital where I was born. And my father was a supporter, and both my grandfathers were supporters. Therefore, I am a supporter. Yes, but what's your other club? It's interesting. We're talking about the lower leagues. Now, in the 1960s and 70s, Nate, when much of the day and the big match on Sunday afternoons mm. dominated the television football landscape... They were very good, both of ITV and the BBC. I'm not sure if it was contractual, but they frequently had second and third, even fourth division matches on. Not, not that frequently, but it but was contractual. On. I believe that they mm. showed a game from the third division and they occasionally showed only the top teams. You actually get more now. The interesting thing really is that the relationship between television and football has evolved so much. You know, people say, look at what Sky has done for football. Look at what football did for Sky. It was going to go out of business without football and so on. And originally, if you go back, one of the reasons why the cup final was so big was that was the only time in a season we got to watch live football. England, and it started it, it, about 8.30 in England's, the morning, England, didn't it? Scotland as well. Not yeah. live, not live. Not, not live, not, no. Not, it was not, live in Scotland. Oh, possibly. Well, where I grew up. There, yes. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it probably matters. Which particular games would be live? Would that be in the 9-3, Paddy? Or, no. <laughs> Actually, that was declared null and void. <laughs> yes, I believe that was correct. Frank Haffey was the one Frank who, Haffey, gave, who yes. gave out the nine goals. Uh, yes. But Frank Haffey wasn't the worst goalkeeper ever to perform. The worst ever goalkeeping performance at Wembley Stadium was by Gordon Banks. In which game? Cup final, Manchester United against Leicester City, 1963, was it? Or 60s? Mm, pretty cool. That he, was why Leicester fans will always tell you that Shelton was a better goalkeeper. I'm not saying that Banks was not a great... Of course he was a great goalkeeper, an all-time great goalkeeper, no question about that. But... I only pointed that out to say that Haffey, despite that game, had a very respectable career as a goalkeeper for Celtic. It did, however, point to the fact that maybe club rather than country was his forte. But, but to be fair, there was a problem with the defence as a whole, not just the keep. He didn't throw it all the back of Well, back. that team that beat Scotland 9-3 was the best England team of all time, in my opinion. I agree with you. Can, uh, you, uh, can you name that team? Yes, I can. Yeah. Well, I can name you. The forward line was Douglas, Greaves, Smith, Haynes and Charlton. In that alone, in those five, you have Douglas was a very good passer as well as a, a very good winger. Haynes was arguably the best passer ever to play for England. Charlton would be two millimetres behind. Smith, OK, was the centre-forward. And the other one was Jimmy Greaves, who could pass or score. So you've got three world-class players and one who, in my opinion, was almost world-class in your front five. 
and behind them would be Bobby Robson Flowers, would it have been? Yeah, left half, yes. I, I think Peter, Peter, Swan. Peter Swan would be sent half. Peter Swan, very good. Jimmy Armfield, and I bet you can't name no. the left... Oh, yes, Jimmy Armfield was, 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 he? was, was right back. He was the right back. Too, yeah. The left back, uh, McNeil? Yeah, very good. Yeah. Brandy. And yeah. the goalkeeper would be Springett. One, of the, be one Springett, of the Springett's. Yes. Yes. Ron Peter. Or oh, Ron, Ron. Yeah, yeah. yeah, of course, Ron. So... In my opinion, that was the greatest ever. They beat Scotland 9-3, but that was a good result compared with what Mexico got, 8-0. But, I mean, I have kind of airbrushed that. Jimmy Arnfield said that that 61 team, that was his team, and and, and it was crippled by Peter Swan being sent to prison. And somebody broke a leg. Bobby Smith broke a leg. Bobby Smith broke a leg. also... Because Jerry Hitchens took over, didn't he? And Hitchens good. three years after the Munich air crash, which... Robbed that team of Tommy Taylor, yes. who was England centre forward. Yes, Roger Byrne, yep. who yes. was the England left back, yes. and of course the great Duncan Edwards. Yes. Who had Duncan Edwards lived? Yeah. The question that nobody ever poses: Would yeah. Bobby Moore have played for England? Ah, had Duncan Edwards okay. lived? You're assuming that Duncan Edwards would have become a footballing second centre half, which is a decent assumption. Why though take him out of midfield? Would he not? Possibly have taken the well, he would have taken the place of anybody he wanted. Well, he would but have taken Nobby Styles' place. He, <laughs> he was a bit better player than Nobby Styles. Yes, but he couldn't have marked Eusebio in the way that, that Nobby Styles. No, did. in what way, Mark? <laughs> Both physically and. Mentally. I mean, to, to listen to Duncan's many admirers, he would have had Eusebio chasing him. <laughs> did, did any of us see Duncan Edwards as a match of interest? I know, you don't, I know we all elevate him to no, this godlike proportion. No, I didn't. But for any young people, which I suppose for me means anybody under 75, wanting to see Duncan Edwards, all you have to do is Google Duncan Edwards' goal in Berlin mm. against Germany, who at the time, he was aged... 21. At the time of that goal, was he? Was he, might he, been young. he was only 18 at the time. 20, and the, and the Germans died. would have been world champions. The Germans were world champions at yeah. the time. Yeah. He picked up the ball. Do you remember Ronaldo, the Brazilian Ronaldo, the, the original, used to have a habit of strolling back with a cigar in his hand to the halfway line, picking up the ball and just going straight for goal people bouncing off or it being beaten by skill or whatever and then lashing it in the net well that's what he did the Germans tried to tackle him couldn't get near it was almost a bit like a wee bit like Maradona's goal in in that sense in that the challenges became more and more desperate they tried to tackle then they tried to scythe him off at their things and you know just hit thin air because he was quick apart from anything else and then he shoots from the edge of the area and it oh do you know what they should bring back into football stanchions? Because it, yeah. it hit the stanchion. Bounce back off. Oh, it comes back off yeah. the stanchion and it's still spinning yeah. when the goalkeeper hits the ground. <laughs> stanchions, stanchions were responsible for a lot. I mean, I can remember at least twice yeah. seeing goals go in, which the referee did not spot. Yes. I can remember Alan Clark scoring one for Leicester. Yeah which hit the against Barnsley in a cup replay, hit and came out, and they didn't give it, and the crowd were completely <laughs> incensed. There, were, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was also one that actually, they then stopped the traditional stand, and they had a sort of one that was shaped yes. in a corner, yes. which didn't go down to the ground. And then the following year, Leicester played 
Portsmouth and they had a fellow called John Galley or something like yeah, that. Yeah. He, and it bounced off both bits and came out. And it <laughs> wasn't given then. It was a half stanchion that Trevor Brooking hit in the Nep Stadium yes. in Bu- Budapest. It got, it stuck, and it, got it stuck, stuck in there. Yes, so there right. was, and, right. and I think he'd deliberately done that because he didn't want it to bounce out <laughs> no, in the ref not to give it. No argument. <laughs> no argument. But, it went on beyond that. There was the Lampard one that went in. That was a stanchion, wasn't it, in the World Cup? It was bar, down and out. Uh, Lampard's, Lampard's was, 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 was yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, But it wasn't. But it was, but it was, it was, it was in. It, was, it yeah, wasn't it was one of those you could argue about. It was well over a metre over the line. Bad as much as Jeff Hurst was in the uh, World Cup final, didn't you oh, think, Paddy, well, at the time? Well, of course. I mean, I think there should always be an asterisk against England's victory in that game. Well, City did score a goal against Arsenal when the referee was a man called Gordon Hill. Mm. And it came out in exactly that way. And he claimed afterwards, Gordon Hill, to the City players, that the sun was in his eyes. And the next time they played in midwinter, all 11 City players came out wearing sunglasses just to send, just to send up Gordon, Gordon, Gordon Hill. Gordon was a Leicester school teacher. Yes, he was. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not impugning his moral character, John. I'm just saying he didn't give the goal that was actually in the but back he was of the a, But he was a respected referee in that he was liked by players yes, he was. generally. Well, he swore back at them. Exactly. Yep. Yep, yep, yeah. Mm. But is football as a whole a better experience for everybody today than it was in, say, 97, well, 50 years ago, 60 years ago when we were growing up, or not? It's a better experience for most people. First of all, it's better for the players in that you see some of the pitches that these guys had to contend yeah. with those days. You can't pass now, and you can have a reasonable expectation that the ball isn't going to do something stupid when it bounces <laughs> and so on. It's a better experience if you go into a stand, even something as uncomplicated as going to the loo. Actually, walking to and from a game is probably more pleasant than it used to be at one stage, although it has gone back. I do think we're not through that. I went to the European final and I think that's the worst experience I've had at a football match in 30 years. So it's not uniformly better. Some things are better, some things are worse. We were younger, we were more innocent. I suspect that's the most important thing. Mm. Of course, obviously, it relates to your club. You talked about the 1963 final and and Gordon Banks having the worst game ever. Mm -hmm. That sort of ruined my life. Mm -hmm. I bore this scar Mm -hmm. of Leicester, looked like they were going to win the double Mm -hmm. and it ended up winning nothing and Mm -hmm. losing the cup final. Mm -hmm. Just completely broke my heart. Mm -hmm. The last Mm -hmm. time, probably, I cried at a football match. Well, Gary, of course, your most famous client, it was the 69 final. Correct, Neil Young's goal that did that, did the same to him. I can't remember who beat us, but it was a (laughs) fluky goal. It was 23rd minute. (laughs) Now, Neil Young, I loved that man so much. He was one of my favourite players of all time. And I wrote this, oh, I got in Sude's Corner, I think. (laughs) Not for the Uh, first or last time. No, absolutely. I deserve, (laughs) by God, I deserve it. I wrote... Lee, Bell and Summerby, like Crosby, Stills and Nash, wouldn't have been the same without Neil Young. Well, yes, yes, I can see why. Anyway, God, it's yeah. all, it doesn't get better well, at the that, time, does it? It's interesting you should bring that, Paddy, because I'm going yeah. to turn the discussion now to something that will unite not just us, but everybody listening to this, which mm. is your heroes. Your heroes define who you are to an extent. And mm. can you have heroes in your 70s? When I was writing this question, I, I was typed it onto the computer and, and Microsoft's spell check changed the word heroes to herpes. Can you have herpes in your 70s? <laughs> to which I suppose the answer is obviously yes. yes. Anyway, John, who are your heroes and why? I suppose 
I'm going to name three. I'm going to name, first of all, David Gibson, who is a genius synonymous with Leicester during the 1960s, which is where I fell in love with the whole thing. Three finals and so on. David Gibson played in two of them. Jimmy Greaves, who was the player I would travel miles to go and watch. Um, a wonderful player. He was everyone's hero. He's the Brill Green boy. He scored goals like... He scored on every debut, and yes. he? he made Jimmy Greaves. And Greece. twice against City, yes. Wonderful player. Later went on TV and became a funny man and yes. so on and so on. And I'm going to name Jamie Vardy because Jamie Vardy, to go back to that era, if you took the Hotspur comic, Jamie Vardy is Alf Tupper, the top of the track. He is the original working class hero. He does things completely wrong. The opposition hate him. And I love it when they try and have a go at him, the opposition fans, because he just goes immediately and scores. And then he runs up to the opposition and he does silly gestures mm. at them. So, yes, they're my okay. three heroes. And Alf Topper, did he by any chance have a wife who went to court over a libel issue? No, I don't think he did, but he used to eat fish and chips. <laughs> he could smell fish and chips from about a mile away. <laughs> And he couldn't resist it. That's what he trained on, fish and chips. What better? Bear in mind, at that time, footballers used to advertise brands of cigarettes on the grounds that they were healthy. Stanley Matthews said, I couldn't have done it with if I hadn't No, it was Eddie Bailey. No, he wasn't. Eddie Stan- Bailey. Stanley Matthews was vegetarian no. and he was, he yeah, was into he, health foods. No, he didn't and, smoke. Craven A cigarettes were considered healthy. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. Eddie Bailey was in the first edition of the Football Monthly that mm. I have, Charlie mm. Buckins Football mm. Monthly, mm. saying at half-time I have a craving eye. It helps me it helps sharpen you. up for the second, for the second half. half. Yes. <laughs> so your heroes. Number one hero is the late Alan Gilzean. John mentioned Jimmy Greaves, and Jimmy Greaves was the first and last to say that the best partner he ever had, and, and my God, he had some great ones, yeah. was Alan Gilzean. Mm. Gilly started at Dundee. I saw his debut when he was 18 in a team which went on to win the league for the one and only time at Dundee. And Gilly went on to score phenomenal numbers of goals. I think he got a hat-trick, maybe even four, when we beat Cologne 8-1 in our first ever Champions League game. It was called European Cup in those days. But he went to Tottenham, and because the demands were different, he just changed his game completely. Instead of being the one that others fed, mm. he became the feed mm. for, among others, Jimmy Greaves. He still scored. He would still score 20 goals plus a season, but he would lay on just as many. He was as good a passer with his head as most players are with their feet, and I'm talking about passing players. In later life, I met Gilly as a person, and he was one of the nicest men I've ever met. I was being entertained by the Premier League and he said, I'll come and say hello. And he did. And as he walked towards me, he was like a ballet dancer. He was walking on his toes. Beautiful, beautiful poise. He must have been 76, 77 at the time. And he still had the poise and grace of a ballet dancer. Sorry to go on and on. But I just, I really did love him. I'll be very brief on the other ones. Like most Scots, my national hero was Diego Maradona because of what he did to England <laughs> in 86. But also because he was you're just, just, just... He was the best footballer. I, no, yeah. I'm being serious. I was being serious there as well, by the way. But also because he was the best footballer I've ever seen in the flesh. Mm. So 
Diego Maradona and well I've already mentioned Neil Young so oh, yes. oh, these yeah, would be the, these would be heroes of mine I'll get rid of my, the, the obvious ones very very quickly Bert Troutman was the beginning yeah, Bert Troutman yeah. was everybody I mean over and above the broken he was a neck. national hero he was for a, a time. absolutely was and, and it's astonishing when you think you know all my friends were Jewish yes and so for a seven-year-old, eight-year-old Jewish boy to think that Bert Troutman was the greatest well, thing that could have been. huge opposition to him even but being that was allowed before to we were, That was in 49. We were born in 49. Yeah. So we weren't aware of that. We were just aware this was the most fantastic... Yeah. He kept us up single-handedly, senior yeah. season after season. He, was, he had and been he a just, German prisoner of war, yeah, of course. He was, yeah. he, and he was a Nazi. There's no good question about it. He was born in 23 in Bremen, mm. joined the Hitler Youth at 10, mm. lived through the, the Nazi years. He fought on the Eastern Front, captured in Normandy. He was a Nazi. There was no mm. question. And yet he was the hero of every Jewish boy who loved football mm. in Manchester. And it was just astonishing. And at the end of his life, or towards the end of his life, I was with Mike Summerby, whose biography I was writing. And he took me into the player's dining room. And there was Bert Troutman, aged 82, but looking Bert Troutman. And it was just, I was just... He was over, a fantastic over, looking man. He was a he? very, very handsome, very well, you know. Yeah. And I suppose I'll put Lee Bell and Sunby together as a holy trinity. Yeah. As, 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 because I want to go back to Troutman and, and to Bobby Moore. To say that the impact that Troutman made on me that day, aged 58, mm. was significant. And the only time I felt that similarly was at the rap party for a film I wrote called Buster, with Phil Collins playing mm, Buster mm, as a train mm, robber. Mm. There was a peculiar collection of sort of the underworld, mm. football stars and show business. And there was Bobby Moore. I was being lauded to an extent because I was the writer of the film without whom none of them would have been there. But I was too overcome to say anything to Bobby Moore. I mm. just looked at him from a distance. And I'm, and I'm 45 at the time. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous, but I felt that. And I just think, well, I've met a lot of famous actors. I've met some very clever people. Mm. And yet there are certain sports stars mm. like that who just induce in me a sense of being overwhelmed by their... Ability by their maybe it's yes. because of the of the sang froid they seem to have. John, what do you, do you understand what I'm saying about? Yeah, about Franz sir? Beckenbauer. Mm. Okay, I can remember being introduced to Franz Beckenbauer a couple of times, and then he was a function that I was at, and I just sort of nodded to him, and he, he acknowledged <laughs> me, and I thought, "Whoa, <laughs> this is." And Beckenbauer was the coolest man alive, yes, wasn't yes. it? Well, next to Bobby Moore, I mean, it was yeah, like yeah. a playoff for coolest yeah. man of all time. Yeah. But Bobby Moore, growing up in Scotland and seeing him on television in Scotland, England games, no one has ever worn that white shirt with the three lions like Bobby Moore did. Mm. You know, sometimes say that Scottish people have a bit of an inferiority complex. I know it's a terrible, nah. terrible generalisation, but there we go. He was the epitome of what we could never be. Mm. Very graceful. Very, graceful. Very, You've got it. Yeah. Well done. There was a tackle he made in that famous game against Brazil mm. in 1970, when he just came out of house arrest and so on, all the rest yeah. of it. And they lost 1-0, but Moore had the most phenomenal game. There's a one tackle where he just emerges with the ball. Is it Jarzinho who's coming towards him? Yes, it is. Well, um, that was the area where the tackle was made. But Moore just emerges with the ball, and Jarzinho's on the ground behind him. And, of course, there's so cool. a shot at the end of the game with Pelé. Yes. Bobby Moore. Yes. Yes. And also the moment where Pelé applauded Gordon Banks' save. Yes, yes. yes. Which was one of the great saves yes, of definitely. all time. Okay, I mean, that, it's that's become bit, fashionable to say that it that's was, a, but the it next, damn well The next was. question is, yeah. that has that sense of sportsmanship, which is beautifully personified by Pelé and Moore and that photograph, has that gone out of the game? 
Is that still there? Sometimes. Not always. There are instances, I think, in, yeah, the, in the game where people season. behave well. If you think back, and to a bit I alluded to early on about these people are ruffians, it was a stupid thing, wasn't it, that rugby was a game for hooligans played by gentlemen yes. and, and football was a game for gentlemen played by hooligans. Nonsense. What you have to remember was that in those days, footballers in general, left school at 15. They weren't uneducated or stupid. They were unsophisticated and so on. Let's remember most of them came from working-class backgrounds as well and so on. And quite frankly, if you were told at 12 or 13, now do you want to work hard for your O-levels, or as it was then, or or Mm. GCSEs, or play for Man United? Well, no. What would you have done? Mm. Well, I wouldn't have wanted to play for Man United. That's yes, you, yes, you would. Yes, no, I you wouldn't. would. Yes, no, you would. I could put a red shirt on a Saturday afternoon and go oh, out there. Come I on. Could, oh, come give me, on. You would not have been a well, professional. I, I, well, it, it was it's come a on. hypothetical. He's already changing his mind, John. Correct. I know. I think we've had a really good time. I think. I hope everybody else who's been listening to the we show have, has, yeah. has had a, a similarly good time, and I hope we might be allowed to do it again at some point in the future. But for the moment, I want to say thank you very much to Paddy Campbell and to John Holmes and from Connie Schindler and the football podcast, Football Ruined My Life. Thank you very much for listening. See you again next time. And Patrick Campbell. And you, <laughs> well, you <laughs> signed off so well. Yes, he was. I can't good. do that again. Well, who I was that boat? Patrick Campbell, who had this stuff on So it's goodbye from my guests, John Holmes, and from Patrick Campbell. And you hopefully. Do it again. <laughs> Barclay. It's goodbye from John Holmes and it's goodbye from Patrick Barclay and from me, Colin Schindler. Thank you for listening. Was a bit noisy with the orgasm of him, did it?